Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Sophia Brown. And she didn't wear a bra, which I support. (laughs) No pun intended. Actually, it was intended. (laughs) That and more. But before that, I want to give a little shout out to our latest Patreon member, Corey Perkins. Thank you so much, Corey, for supporting the show. We always give a little shout out whenever someone joins for $25 or more per month, but you can join for whatever amount of money you want per month. And there's so many different prizes and bonus content. You know, it's just a very fun way to become a little bit more a member of the risk community by going over to patreon.com slash risk and become a member. One of the latest things we're doing is that fans are sending in audio clips, you know, about three, four, five, six minutes long, where they talk about their favorite stories, why they love risk, you know, some way that risk affected their lives, sending those in. And then I'll play those in our Patreon check-ins and respond, you know, as far as how I'm feeling about that. That's just one of the many, many ways that we create all kinds of bonus content over there at patreon.com slash risk. Another thing we're really encouraging all our fans to do right now is in these weeks before Risk turns 10 years old on October 6th, we're inviting all our fans to post on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, hashtag listen to risk, and then tell little stories either with photos or just tweets or I don't know, whatever kind of content you want to post in which you share why risk is special to you and why you think other people should hashtag listen to risk. Let them know they can get it wherever they get their podcast or at risk-show.com. Remember, that's hashtag listen to risk. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Billy Preston behind me now. We're calling this week's episode Unstoppable. I'll tell you, I feel pretty unstoppable right now. We just celebrated the 10th anniversary of the Risk live show in New York because, you know, the live show started a few months before the podcast started. And that was one heck of a show in New York. And then I went to Toronto and had just another absolutely spectacular show in Toronto. Man, do I love that city. I am really falling in love with Toronto. I also... Didn't expect that I would be able to say this. (laughs) But at the age of 49, I had the best sex I think I have ever had in my life (laughs) last night in Toronto. So I don't know. It was some much needed, uh, I don't know, feeling of getting some mojo back here. And people just expressed so many really moving things to us uh, after the show in Toronto. There there was a couple that came up to me, a newly married couple who are having a baby. And they said that listening to Risk, well, first of all, it was a way that they came together in their relationship. Like they, when they first started dating, they would share stories from Risk with each other and discuss them. We've had a lot of people say that, that Risk was important in their dating life with just a a, a source of things to discuss with their partners, sharing it together. But they went on to say that they feel like the podcast has had a profound effect on their ability to raise a child. 
They said, you know, we have heard so many stories of things that have happened in so many wildly different people's lives, their childhoods, and so many people's different parenthood experiences on the show, that they said, we feel like we're much more prepared for what life might throw at us just from listening to the show. That was really moving to hear. I'll tell you, another thing is, one of my very, 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 very favorite things that we do on Risk are our radio-style stories. Those are the ones that are not recorded live in front of an audience, but are recorded one-on-one and then have music and sound design added. The thing is, the radio-style stories are so, so work-intensive. That, you know, I always say, oh my gosh, if we only had more listeners and more money and more resources that we would do so many more radio style stories. But we do as many as we can and I'm thrilled that we have another one on today because this is just something else. The the radio style story you're about to hear later in the episode coming up from Stefan Alexander. But before that, we're going to hear a story that was recorded at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles recently. This is actor and musician Sophia Brown, who you can find on Instagram at young Fifi. That's young P-H-I-P-H-I. <laughs> and here she is now, Sophia Brown, with a story we call, What's So Black About That? Hey, y'all. So a few months ago, I got accepted into this program called BADA, British American Drama Academy. It was this program where I was supposed to learn about myself and become a better actress and all, and I wanted to see what my grandma saw. My grandma always believed in me to become this actress and pursue my dream, which I didn't even know I really had a dream, but she saw it, and I just wanted to see that. So when I went, I was really excited to, you know, get discovered by Idris Elba in the streets of Camden and <laughs> drink tea only at tea time because it was that specific and uh, eat overpriced food that wouldn't fill me up at all. I mean, I was overly juiced, obviously. <laughs> and when I went, I made the best of friends. I was never really a person to be casted as the main character. I was always like the almost main character, like I'd audition for Timon and get Pumba, or I'd audition for Dorothy and get Scarecrow, or potato, Tomato, Potato, Monado, you know, all same shit. And in London, I actually got casted as um, one of my first main roles, uh, as Boudicca. And that was super exciting, and I also made the best of friends and basically family at that point. And on top of that, got a few new hoes in different area codes, <laughs> you know. But. <laughs> but there was this teacher. Now, she had this demeanor to her that just made me like her. She was witty and funny, and she was just disrespectful as hell. But I liked that, because I didn't see too many teachers like that. She would just say remarks that really a teacher shouldn't say, and she told us that she got fired from her last job. And I always wondered why, but I was like, oh no, she's cool, because you know, she likes to play jokes. And you know, she had a gray aesthetic, maybe like yay high, her hair was thinning, and, and she didn't wear a bra, which I support. <laughs> no pun intended, actually, it was intended. Uh, you know, hashtag free to nipple, but sometimes she would um, bend over just a little too much, and I would get slapped, but I don't mean with her hand. You don't know what I'm saying? <laughs> and she made us do games so we get to know each other. So we did these name games. So we did a name, where you're from, and a gesture. So she goes first, and she goes, I'm Laura. And she does a little thinker position. She's like, from London. And everybody else goes, everyone's Virginia, Kansas, Mississippi, Connecticut, gets to me. I'm from Oakland. And I already know Oakland has a negative connotation behind it. So I knew before going into it, I was just going to do something sweet. So I did a little peace sign, and I said, Fern. I didn't really feel that, but I thought, you know, I knew my audience, you know. And then she stops me, and she asks me to do it again, and again, and again, and she didn't do this to anybody else. 
And she's telling me to be, be scarier, be meaner. You know, you're from Oakland. Give me that Oakland hood. And I knew her ass had not been to Oakland, but I was giving her the benefit of the doubt because, you know, London's different. And I wanted to just think good of her, if that makes sense. And so, you know, I went on and I did it. And I did it, and I felt weird, and everyone was kind of looking at me like, hmm, but, you know, no one really said anything. So I kept going along with my day, and then a couple weeks later, um, we had to do our, let's say, our scenes and stuff. And she lets us, she picks a monologue and a scene for us. And everyone gets a normal one, let's say Juliet from Romeo and Juliet, or uh, Orsino from Twelfth Night, and she gets to me, and she says, I'm going to give you... Titus Andronicus. Do you know who or what that is? And I wasn't very Shakespeare um, educated, per se. So, you know, I said, no, I didn't know. And she said, well, um, it's a weird play. Um, and since you being the weird one in class, I thought you could understand him. And everyone knew damn well who the weird one in class was. It was a dude in the corner who picked out his toenails and ate it. And I was, <laughs> I was damn sure the baddest bitch in the room. So they knew. And we all knew at the same time what she meant for weird. So I kind of was just like, okay, okay, that's cool. Um, and she's like, well, do you know why I'm giving you this character? And I was like, as a non-biased, can't-see-color-ass would say, no, why? And she says, well, well, because you're black. You don't get it? Well, you're black and he's black. I mean, we's black. Don't you get it? The vernacular, right? I thought you could understand him, you know, the trials and, and say, tribulations you've been through with your people. Yeah. And um, this is in front of the whole class, and everyone's looking at me to see what I'm going to do and looking at her like, damn, what the fuck did she just say? And I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? So I'm sitting there like, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. I later looked him up, and Aaron was a rapist and a killer. A black man. In this monologue, he talked about doing the worst things imaginable with no remorse. So basically, she equivalized blackness and evil. I mean, they say light skins are the devil, but I didn't think I was that bad. <laughs> so we go on, and, and on top of all the racist, microaggressive bullshit she was putting on me, I came down with this really bad flu. I, I still went to class for like three weeks, but it, it took me out for about two days of her class. And so we go into our mini meetings, and she tells me, well, she got the caucasity to tell me that I got a C minus in the class, when everybody else, Scarlett, Drew, Drake, Josh, Megan, all had A's. It just didn't make no sense. So I'm like, well, what can I do to get my grade up? Because nothing else was cutting it. And she says, well, how's the scene going? Uh, I was like, you know, it's actually going well. Desdemona, she does this singing part, and I play guitar and flute, so I thought maybe I can incorporate it into the piece. And then she's like, yeah, 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 that's all cool, no, but what are you going to do? You going to rap it? No. Say, so you going to put a beat to it? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, all right, okay. And by this point, I had already made an acronym for myself, being all the teachers um, kind of acted somewhat similarly. She was the worst, called 2B on P, too black on premises. So uh, when I would be doing too much for them, quote, unquote, I would just say, to be on P, and I told my friend KT, that was the quarter Dominican person in the class, but my teacher didn't know that there was any other black people in the class because I guess they were passing. So whenever I would be doing too much, I would say, to be on P. <laughs> so at that point, when she said that, I made another acronym up called unapologetically to be on P. So I didn't know which one I should do at that point. So I just said, no, ma'am. I was not going to say, put a beat to it, uh, seeing that that's not a character trait of Desdemona. And um, she's about to die, and the person killing her is her true love Othello. But uh, oh, if, if you would like me to do that, Massa, then I would be so delighted to please <laughs> That's what I wish I said. I know. <laughs> so the weeks went on, and it was time for our scenes. And I sang my song. And then it was time for my monologue. I, that I had not done a thousand more, even now I curse the day, wherein I did not some notorious ill as kill a man, or else devise his death, ravish a maid, or plot a way to do it. Accuse some innocent, 
and forswear myself. Set deadly amnesty between two friends. Make poor men's cattle break their necks. She interrupts me halfway through and she says, yeah, yeah, that's cool, isn't it? But um, how about you try this? Um, for lack of terminology, why don't you say, um, black it up? Okay, um, okay, how about this? Um, put your black into it. Okay, um, okay, act as a convict. Okay, um, and she's starting to do these ape-like figures. And she's like, you know, um, put your Oakland slang in there. Walk it like you talk it, pimp. And I was standing in the middle of the circle scared. And everyone was looking at me and not doing anything or saying anything. I had options. Do I stand up for myself and take this bitch by the titty and throw out the window? <laughs> do I walk out the door? Or do I do it exactly the same? I really wanted that good grade. And I just did it exactly the same. And she said, perfect. A few weeks went by, and I was still just trying to see what was wrong and why nobody was saying anything, why she ran away right after class, and why she felt, I knew she felt what she felt. And I knew she felt the energy in the room, but she didn't do anything, and she never said anything. And I was quiet the rest of the classes. And I got called into the dean's office one day. And I went out and she told me that someone had told her from the class what had been going on. Because the moment she started saying things publicly, I think that's when she kind of fucked up. I was going to say something at some point. So, so part of me was kind of pissed. I wanted to say it myself. But the other part of me was happy that someone else did say something. And they care that something, you know, had to be done. And it made it easier for me to tell and made it seem like I'm not just telling a fantasy story or not a fantasy story, just a lie. Because this, this shit don't sound real. <laughs> and you know, it wasn't Tiki Torches and White Hoods, but it was something close. They told me that they put her out of circulation and which means getting fired. And then they told me that they were also starting a brown training program because of me and to teach these racist teachers, or just teachers in general, how to teach American POC children from America, which is great. So like, I'm basically like the Rosa Parks at the bottom, but like, you can... <laughs> not even a brag or nothing, but, um... but who knows? They might not fire her. I mean, I could go back and I could still see her there, you know? They might not have actually started the program that they said they were gonna start in. But as long as, if I can help someone else in the same situation, I mean, honestly, that's better than anything. And honestly, people keep asking me, you know, you're so brave, you're so strong for going through all this, but I didn't choose to be in this situation or this experience. And this is not a story on, you know, fuck this teacher and I, I don't like her. You know, there's parts of me that still like, liked her somehow and felt for her because I'm a I'm, you know, personal person. But I mean, what she did was not okay. And the fact that she saw my color before she saw me or the fact that my color was too loud for her to even hear me. It's just unacceptable. And I just kept going back to that day over and over again. When I went back to my seat, and I thought I was just came up so confident and I came back so defeated. And I was in my, my seat and I was writing over and over again to you know black it up, be more black, black enough. And I, that I had not done a thousand more, black it up. Even now, I curse the day. She's not black enough. She, wherein I did not some notorious ill as kill a man. That's black. Accuse some innocent and forswear my motherfucking self. How black? Set deadly amnesty between two friends, and now you black. So take that. Your weave snatched, ooh, baby got back. Get beat blue black just because your skin matched. Rodney King continued to sing, prayers to Trayvon and all my black wings. We look so beautiful just like we could, and now you saying things like, nigga, I wish you would. You starting to like it, the attitude so hood, and mm, our food just tastes so damn good. Now get that shit back. And look at everything you lack. You could take all the oppression back, baby, but please don't ask. Uh, fun, just what's so black? about that. Thank you.
This is Risk. This is Fern behind me now. P-H-E-R-N. And it is also Sophia Brown, who we just heard telling that story at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. On this episode, we have songs that come from both of our storytellers. Our final story on this week's episode is a longer one. And it is one that has been long in the works. I'm so excited to finally be premiering it on the podcast here. This is Stefan Alexander, who you can find on Instagram at Stefan Alexander. That's S T E F A N A L X N D R. I'll tell you more about Stefan after the story, but here he is now with a story we call You've Worried Enough for Today. Music has always felt like breathing to me. It's just something I did. I go into toy stores and make a beeline for the instrument section. Play there for as long as my parents would let me. When I was six, I started taking cello lessons And for years, I thought I'd be a professional cellist when I grew up. Then when I was 11, I got to perform in the coveted sixth grade talent show. It's this big rite of passage that every kid waits for all through elementary school. They had it in this hardwood gymnasium with a stage at the front. It's where we'd run around for PE every day, but that night it was filled with folding chairs all our teachers, parents, and family in this packed room. I waited in the wings while my friends went up before me. But I was so scared, my stomach was filled with butterflies when I finally went up on stage. The bright lights made it look like the crowd went on forever. For my act, I decided to sing a song called The General by the band Dispatch. There was a decorated journal where the heart go. It was 2003, and the U.S. had just invaded Iraq. The song is this anti-war anthem, and so I didn't realize how perfect it would be in the small, progressive college town where I grew up. Once I got through the last chorus, everybody leapt from their chairs and gave me a standing ovation. Honestly, I was pretty confused. I didn't know whether they were clapping for me or the pacifist message of the song, but in the end, it it didn't matter. I saw what music could do to move people, and so I wanted to write my own songs. I started insatiably searching for new music to dig into. I looked to the past. I became obsessed with blues, jazz, old-time folk, and gospel. When I was 17, I started collecting 78 RPM shellac records. They're what people used to listen to music on before vinyl. And... After a while, all these elderly people in my town got wind of my growing collection, and I started getting calls from people who just wanted to give me the boxes they'd been storing in their basements or attics for decades. Each one meant so much to me. The crinkle of those ancient paper sleeves, 
the mildewy smell of time, the clicks and pops of the needle bouncing through the grooves. But they were so old and fragile, I was scared I might break them. I remember once uh, I was sitting on the floor of my bedroom going through a new box, and I pull out this record that says Deep River by Marian Anderson. I'd never heard of her before, so I did some quick research. She was this black opera and gospel singer from the 20s and 30s, and the song was this old spiritual about overcoming the trials and tribulations of life and finding salvation. I put the record on the player, and immediately I'm bathing in these rolling piano chords. Then Marian Anderson drops in like a soft stone and ripples through me. I didn't know a person could sing so much emotion into one note. I'm staring at the record on the turntable, the record spinning, and before I know it, Tears come to my eyes. A couple months later, I'm applying for colleges, and I get into this small, selective program at NYU for audio production, music business, and performance. I walked with pride at my high school graduation in my navy blue cap and gown. I'd been in the a cappella group for a couple years, and for our graduation performance, we sang A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke. All the seniors took turns sharing the solo, and I got to go last. I sang my first big line, and this woman in the bleachers yells, Damn, that boy can sing! When I moved to New York at the end of the summer, I knew I was making the right decision. I was doing the thing I was born to do. It's six years later, the spring of 2015, two years after I graduated from college, and now I find myself clinging to the shreds of the life I'd planned, too scared to tell people how terrified I am. Now I'm in Madison Square Park with Francesco, this guy I've been dating for the past couple months. It's this warm, damp night. The street lamps are reflecting off the pavement and the leaves of the trees. We find one of the only dry benches in the park underneath this awning and sit down. He puts his arm around me and says, You've told me everything that's happening to you, but you've never told me how it makes you feel. I grab his hand and squeeze it. Thanks, but... I don't think I'm ready. I'm scared I might cry in front of you. Let's just talk about something else. I couldn't let him in, and I think it's one of the reasons why we stopped seeing each other a month later. Whenever people would ask me what I was going through, I would just laugh it off. Say something like, Isn't it crazy how I haven't been able to play guitar for two years? How my arms hurt so much that I can barely cut vegetables? This tingling, sizzling pain that never seems to go away. away. Isn't it crazy how I haven't been able to sing for almost a year? How I avoid happy birthday at friends' parties? My throat felt like it was on fire. So my lifelong dream 
was on this permanent pause. I was in this purgatory of not knowing what was wrong with me or if it ever would get any better. On the rare occasion when I would pick up my guitar and try to sing, after a couple minutes, it felt like this snake was coiling around my arms and my vocal cords, tightening and constricting. Constricting. That dull ache I'd grown so familiar with would sharpen into what felt like serrated fangs biting into my muscles. Every ounce of venom that would pass into my arms and my throat reminded me of the life I wasn't living. The growing chasm between who I wanted to be and what I was capable of. With this needling feeling and this electric tension that just rolled up and down my arms and through my throat. With this feeling of those teeth biting harder and harder down on my arms, chomping into my throat, the tissue around my voice box. I'd wince my way through a couple more lines, and then I would have to give up. Terrified, defeated, recoiling from my favorite possessions, swallowing down the lingering sandpaper. My instruments just collected dust around my room. Without music in my life, I had to find other ways to pass the time. I'd go for these long walks in Greenwood Cemetery. It's one of the only places I could really find peace, surrounded by those endless gravestones. One day, I'm walking in Greenwood, the sun is shining, and I'm on the phone with my mom, repeating those same questions I had asked so many times. What if I can never play guitar again? What if I can never sing again? What is my life gonna be like? She stops me and says, You know, I think you've worried enough for today. That became my mantra whenever those thoughts would pop back into my head. But I'm still going to three or four doctor's appointments every week. (sighs) Stiff hospital gowns, wax paper on cold steel tables, tools poking and prodding, gagging at the back of my throat. All these doctors are just contradicting one another. I'm met with these looks of confusion or even disdain. Without meaning to, I was testing their egos, their confidence in their expertise. And all they could do to look for any kind of clue was throw electric shocks and sharp needles at me. All those vials of blood I filled. The robotic beeping, the ominous hum. And when they'd roll me into an MRI machine, that dark cocoon brought me right back to my childhood. I was born with a condition called hydrocephalus, where the fluid doesn't flow properly through my brain. So I had to have nine surgeries when I was growing up. Whenever I got a bad enough headache and got nauseous, I had to go back to the hospital for a CAT scan to see if I needed another surgery. It probably happened 50 times while I was growing up, and it was always so scary because I never knew whether those days would end curled up on the couch or being rushed into the operating room. Now, as an adult, going to all these appointments, I'm comfortable in these environments. I'm a bit of a medical care connoisseur, but it's still so hard going in for test results. Always hoping to finally be relieved of this endless mystery, but everything always came back normal. It didn't make any sense. 
I'm in so much pain, but all these top doctors can't see or feel anything wrong with me. I remember leaving another one of those sterile offices, knowing less than what I'd arrived, and thinking to myself, I just wish I had cancer. Trying to make some crazy deal with the devil to exchange one illness for another. I don't care how serious or life-threatening this thing is, I just want to know what I have and how to treat it. Or I want someone to tell me it's time to give up. All these doctors can do is just throw medications at me. Some new pill. And for a couple days, I'd make myself believe it was working. But then reality would set in. Nothing helped. Nothing changed. Except for the worse. The day after the 2016 presidential election, I had an appointment with this immunologist I had been working with for a couple years. I was obviously already emotionally raw, scared for my country when she walked into the room, looking somber with a manila envelope in her hands. She sits down across from me and she doesn't even open it. She says, Whatever you have might be beyond the scope of current medical science. I look back at her and I don't know what to say. I'm thinking, you gotta be kidding me. I never even imagined that this quest I was on might not have an end. I took the subway home completely devastated. A couple weeks later, I'm walking home through Ditmas Park one night. The branches of the trees that were so beautiful in the daytime just looked heavy and oppressive in silhouette. It's one of the few times I was actually able to cry during all those years. New York and the doctors here had failed me. What the hell am I supposed to do now? I feel my breath get shallow and my heart start to race. I have to call my mom. Thank God she picks up the phone. My questions this time are way more existential. Can I even call myself a musician anymore? What do I have to live for? With this huge lump in my throat, I say, Mom, this is the first time I've ever seriously considered suicide. From 150 miles away, she pours every ounce of empathy she can into the phone and says, You are smart, you are strong, and you're gonna get through this. I just know it. I love you. I love you too, Mom. The next few months were really tough. It felt so weird ringing in the new year with so little to hope for. Fireworks were never so quiet, and I drank that night like I drank since this all started, way back in 2013 trying to calm my anxiety and numb my pain as best I could. Thinking to myself, maybe music wasn't what I was born to do. But if people can't hear my songs, how can they ever really know me? I was scared for the future, scared of some new body part rebelling against me, Scared of another mystery. But a couple weeks into January, my mom calls me and she's all excited. <laughs> she says, 
Have you ever heard of the Mayo Clinic? It's this world-renowned research hospital out in the Midwest. If anybody can figure out what's going on, it's gotta be them. So four months later, I'm standing in front of these two tall marble towers in Rochester, Minnesota, clutching a briefcase filled with the 400 pages of medical records I accumulated from the 25 doctors I saw in those four years. I take the elevator up to my first appointment with the head of my medical team. I watch him nervously as he reads through the stack of papers. After about 10 minutes, he looks up and says, Well, you've pretty much ruled everything out already. We'll rerun a couple tests, but I think the best thing for you to do is to go to this seminar on a condition called Central Sensitization Syndrome. A couple days later, I'm in this dark basement room of the hospital, surrounded by all these other sick people, all of them moaning and groaning, but I can't take my eyes off the screen. It feels like this PowerPoint presentation was made about my life. The psychologist leading the seminar says, when you have central sensitization syndrome, your brain can hardwire injuries, so it keeps on sending the same pain signals even after the tissue is healed. It's essentially phantom pain, and it's often the result of early childhood trauma. Wow. Wow. No one had ever been able to make the connection between my current illness and what I went through when I was a kid. All those surgeries, it all fit together. Whereas every other possible diagnosis had only covered part of what I was going through, this explained everything. All those negative test results, all those doctors throwing up their hands, shrugging their shoulders, I finally had an answer. The psychologist says, unfortunately, there's no easy fix for this. No magic pill we can prescribe. The only treatment we can recommend is this three-and-a-half-week pain rehabilitation program here at the Mayo Clinic. So, a month later, I'm back in Minnesota for my first day. I walk into the main room and sit down next to another patient, forcing a smile. It's hard for me not to feel apprehensive because I've just tried so many interventions already, but... This is all I have left. During the first group therapy session, one of the doctors says, you need to be realistic and manage your expectations because you might not get everything back. My hand shoots up. After all these years, being realistic just feels like giving up. I'm not going to give up on music. I have to perform again. All he can say is, well, I hope someday you can. But after a couple days, they actually get me playing guitar and singing again. I can only do each for a few minutes apiece, but the idea is I have to change my relationship to pain, to work through it instead of against it, using cognitive behavioral therapy and different mindfulness techniques to calm my brain and get in front of my automatic thoughts. So now, when that snake starts to coil and those serrated fangs bite down, I have to tell myself, this pain isn't real. I'm not doing myself any harm. I'm healthy. Everything's okay. And each day, I can play for just a little longer. As grueling as the program is, it feels amazing to be surrounded by all these people who understand so intimately what it's like to live in pain for so many years. What it's like to be a medical mystery. Some of the people there had been living with their symptoms 
for decades, and it really put mine into perspective. After a while, I even start making some friends. On the last weekend before the end of the program, these two incredible women, Jen and Mona and I, decide to go tubing on a nearby river. It's this beautiful, beautiful summer day. Big blue sky with these wispy clouds, a warm breeze. Even though I'm scared, I'll cut my feet. We walk down this winding gravel path to the dock. Mona brings a portable speaker with her into her tube, and as we start gliding down the river, she says, let's each think of an inspirational song, something that really got us through the toughest times. Immediately, Marian Anderson pops into my head. And we're on this river after all, so <laughs> it felt pretty appropriate. But looking back, I'm no longer that teenager sitting on his bedroom floor. I've had my own trials and tribulations. The song means so much more to me now than it did nine years ago. Mona puts it on and we all go silent. All we can hear are those rolling piano chords, that haunting vibrato, and the quiet babble of the current underneath us. Later that night, when Mona's driving me home, we stop at a red light. She turns to me and says, can I tell you something? I think pretty much every five minutes, all day long, you used the words, I'm scared. I stare out the windshield, and this shiver runs through me. No one has ever said something so profound about me that I was completely unaware of. No one has ever listened to me with such presence. And this woman has only known me for two weeks. She pulls up to the curb. I open my door and we say goodnight. Back in my motel room, I sit down on the couch with my face in my hands. These memories flash across the insides of my eyelids. I see myself lying awake as a kid, obsessing over house fires, burglars, asteroids hitting the earth, my parents dying. I see myself going around and around the first floor of our house, checking the locks on every door and window four or five times before I felt confident I'd done everything in my power to keep me and my family safe from the outside world. I see myself as a teenager walking up the stairs to my parents' room in the dark late at night, waking up my mom to say, Good night, good night. I love you. I love you. So I could go to sleep knowing those were the last words we'd shared just in case she never woke up. I see myself over these last four years refusing to let people know about the nightmare I'm living and too scared to tell people how I'm actually feeling. Fear has always been in the foreground of my life. And now it's this fear of pain that's keeping me from all these activities I love this career I've worked my whole life for. On Monday, I tell one of the doctors about my epiphany. He looks at me with these caring eyes and says, that fear is probably a large component of what's kept you in this pain cycle for so long. A switch flips inside me, this rush of clarity. I realize if I truly want to get better, I have to learn to be brave. At the end of the week, it's the end of the program, graduation day. That afternoon, everyone is supposed to give a little speech talking about all the gains they've made. Before lunch, 
one of my physical therapists comes up to me and says, you know you have to sing for everyone, right? My face scrunches up and my lips get all pursed. (laughs) I don't know if I'm ready. (laughs) What if I mess up? What if my voice cracks? But a couple hours later, I'm standing at the front of the room, surrounded by my peers, my new friends. This program really works. I've spent all these years trying to get back to music, trying to get back to myself, and I finally feel like I'm finding my way back. Then I take a deep breath and sing. Deep river, my home is over Jordan. Deep river, Lord, I want to cry. Two years later, I'm finally releasing new music and performing again. I still have chronic pain, but I'm not afraid of it anymore. And that newfound bravery has permeated every facet of my life, from songwriting to dating to the outward expression of my queer identity. My mom's words still ring true. You've worried enough for today. No, this life isn't easy. Oh, 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 oh. No one understands what I'm going through All these aches and pains, what am I to do? all for this week's episode folks this is stefan alexander behind me now this song thunderclap was inspired by the events described in the story we just heard by stefan alexander stefan's brand new debut ep is coming out on august 30th wherever you stream or buy your music look for it spotify apple music all the familiar places Stefan is on Instagram at Stefan Alexander. Let me spell that for you. It's S-T-E-F-A-N-A-L-X-N-D-R on Instagram. And he welcomes hearing from other people suffering from chronic pain or illnesses, you know, similar stories. Uh, He's curious to hear from listeners out there. Also, a huge, huge thanks to John LaSala, one of our audio editors here on the team, for all the gorgeous, beautiful work done on that story. And thanks to Justin J. Wee for suggesting we put Stefan on the show. We always welcome it when people reach out to us and say, Hey, my friend has an incredible story. You should really talk to my friend. Hugely appreciative of that all the time. If you have 
a scary story, or if you know anyone who has a scary story to pitch us for our Halloween episode coming up at the end of October, please pitch us immediately at pitches at risk-show.com. If you know anyone who has an interesting ghost story or an encounter with a knife-wielding maniac or some sort of, I don't know, anything akin to a horror movie or a psychological thriller, pitch us at pitches at risk-show.com ASAP. It's really hard to find scary stories, so we really want as many pitches for that as we can possibly get. And if you are interested in the storytelling training we do at thestorystudio.org, don't forget there's an offer code there at thestorystudio.org. It's RISK, R-I-S-K, good for 15% off the regular price of our classes in New York, Minneapolis, or Los Angeles. There's also gift certificates available there, so you can give the gift of storytelling training at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Oh.